pounds. Six ninety-nine per pound. Six ninety-nine per 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 pound. Per per pound. Per 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 pound. Per per pound. Six ninety-nine per pound. Pound. Hey yo, it's six ninety nine per pound podcast. Yeah, so once again, six ninety nine per pound podcast hosted by your boy JK Cho and JoJo, aka JoJo Parkay. Um, we're gonna talk about people's grinds, but also pick their minds, ask them about their successes and failures, and hopefully provide you guys with some great examples and success stories that you can aspire to. Yeah, this is this is kind of like a, a smooth but not so smooth transition. I need to kind of kind of work this Listen out up. a little mm-hmm. bit. We need a little mm-hmm. bit more sesame oil over here. <laughs> um, so yeah, like how about how about we start talking about what we've been into lately? Yeah, I wanted to discuss current obsessions with you. Okay. So things that we are interested in, things that we're reading up about, that is helping us kind of level up, as you say. And I wanted to jump right in and say I would like to profess that I'm a coffee addict. I drink like two, three cups a day. It's I can a tell. very <laughs> I can tell from the tone of your voice. I have lots of energy. Um, New York lifestyle, it's such a social thing. You do it in the morning, you go midday, and then you try to perk yourself up in the midday. And it's just been getting in a huge way of my life. And I was feeling so jittery all the time, crashing all the time. So my friends actually put me on matcha. So you know what that is. Mm. Okay. Um, it's that green stuff. Yes, that green stuff. Um, but yeah, it's not like green tea, like the tea bag, but it's like the young green <laughs> tea leaves that's been crushed. And when it's used in its pure form, not like the, you know, matcha latte that's like super sweet and fake in Starbucks. Um, shots against Starbucks. <laughs> I know, shots. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but the if you actually consume, like, if you go to, like, Sunrise Mart and get, like, an actual legit thing of matcha, uh. this tiny-ass thing is, like, $20, right? Matcha deploys caffeine a lot slower in your body, whereas coffee, you get, like, an instant kind of high, um, like instant jitters. That's why some people put like oil or butter in their coffee because they're like, oh God, like I need to like slow this caffeine intake down. Right. Whereas matcha, it gives, it proclaims to give you a longer focus, even though it has like a third of the caffeine amount. And it has like a ton of antioxidants. Like if you look at a bar chart from like, you know, matcha versus coffee, which coffee is known to have antioxidants as well, matcha like hands down. So I've been doing it for like a week and I definitely feel much better. The first few days are hell though because you get caffeine headache. Have you ever experienced that? Nah. Do you drink coffee? Not yet. I do. I do drink uh, a glass of uh, glass of Americano every morning. Mm, very so Korean so I could, of you. Uh, yeah, just so I could like <laughs> blast away in the toilet. <laughs> You know oh I mean? my god, TMI. Yeah. Is this that kind of podcast? Uh-huh. We're going to be that open? Yeah, very much. Um, uh, so let's, yeah, what have you been obsessed with lately? Yo, uh, so this is kind of like me going back to my childhood um, and just kind of professing my undying love for the man, the legend, Jackie Chan. Honestly, the his latest film, The Foreigner, was kind of a struggle. I didn't like it. It was more so like a Pierce Brosnan film, if anything. Oh. It just had too much... Irish people just arguing over something, whereas Jackie Chan didn't really even feel like the main character in the film. But yeah, man, let me just tell you about the greatness that is Jackie Chan, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, and his filmography. Like, he's been around on the planet Earth for Mm. 63 years, man. 63 years, man. Most people don't even live that long, right? (laughs) And he's been making films before he was like 10 years old. And Oh my God. Mind you, like, at his peak which popped off from the late 70s to I would say maybe even like early 2000s. That's about 20 plus years that he's been making consistent movies. And in certain times, like he was banging out like two to three just bangers. That's insane. Like every year, nonstop. You know what I mean? Even Hove doesn't have a track record like that. You know what I'm saying? Like... Yo, like, if there's any person in the world that I would say that loves filmmaking the Mm, most, mm -hmm. I would argue that it's Jackie Chan, man. There's films where he action choreographed, directed, acted, co-produced it, and he also did the theme music. Mm. 
I've been rewatching a lot of his late 70s flicks and it just kind of reminded me how incredible his filmmaking style is and he often gets underappreciated as just being action comedy but I feel like it's just a form of art mm, mm-hmm. um, more so than any you know acclaimed film that you might see in Hollywood so I just like to give a very important quick shout out to Daga Jackie Chan <laughs> Wait, I want to ask though, did you see that insanely viral video of him being surprised by like by his, his old... OG stunt team? Yeah, Hell yeah, that made me cry. Oh yeah, man, he's a good dude. But then again, he does confess that he's not like the best husband. Mm. You know what I mean? That he does have his flaws. You know what I mean? He has like a baby mom with another lady. Oh snap. You know what I mean? But like... Drama. Then again, like I'm not trying to defend his flaws and anything, but like... You know, like, yo, my man is just, he's been rich since he was 27 years old. When you come from nothing and you just gain all this access and wealth, like, you just don't really know how to control it. Mm-hmm. And for somebody who has so much wealth and influence, like, I feel like for, for you know, a lot of people in Hong Kong, they don't like him now because he's kind of, his political stance has been really closer to China lately, uh, whereas not representing his hometown Hong Kong as much. But, yo, like... I, He's, he's a living legend, man. And, nice. Um, I give nothing but respect to that man. So, yo, go watch more Jackie Chan shows. <laughs> even though his latest films have been pretty subpar. But, you know, but give him credit, though. He's 60, 63 years old, man. Still doing his own stunts. Still doing it. You know what I'm saying? All right, man. So, for our first <laughs> recorded episode, we have the New York Borough Chief of The Ringer, Donnie Kwok. Donnie was an editor for Vibe, Complex, ESPN, has written for a wide variety of hip-hop magazines in the 90s and 2000s, and um, you've read his article about Gangnam Style, singer size billboard cover story, <laughs> um, Ichima rapper Keith Ape for Complex, and a little-known fact that I have to put out there. Uh-oh. Deezus and Mero on Viceland was actually his brainchild. Because mm. it was him who originally put together Deezus versus Mero, a very popular podcast on Complex. So let's welcome him to the $6.99 per pound podcast. Wow, thank you. What an introduction. Welcome. That's amazing. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. We're so excited. You're our inaugural guest. I know. I know. I, I have to set the standard here. I got. I got to be entertaining, right? Exciting and funny. You got to sip a little bit more of that whiskey. I know. I know. I'm not supposed to be drinking this, but Actually, it was Donnie literally forced into my hand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. That's the, that's our way. That's this is stunt whiskey. Mm-hmm. Stunt. All right. Um, yeah. Well, just to kind of start off, we wanted to talk about the genesis of. Donnie Kwok. The Genesis. The Genesis, yes. Like in the Bible. (laughs) 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 Insert music here. Yeah. Um, We wanted to learn more about like young Donnie. Mm. Like take us to young Don in Maryland. In Maryland. Yeah, well, I I was born in Tacoma Park, Mm -hmm. Maryland, for those who know Maryland. Um, That's where Steve Francis is from basketball player. I don't know, maybe an old reference. You know, my father was a journalist. I mean, he's still alive, but he um, worked for Voice of America doing mm-hmm. radio, like Korean radio. So oh. I kind of grew up wanting to be a journalist. And um, my first love was always sports. So I kind of always dreamed about like actually being a broadcaster. Like, so I would record myself like doing fake sports reports and stuff like that. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. I think my mom still has the cassette tape somewhere. Like this is back in the days where like um I don't know if you old old heads remember when you those tape recorders you the, the big tape recorder with like the the big record button and like mm-hmm. I would just sit there and be like, you know, I was from Maryland so I I was always doing like the Redskins beat the Eagles 24 to 14, you know. Oh, <laughs> yeah, wow. something like that. And I always kind of had like a you know, a kind of a husky or deeper voice. And so, um, you know, like, I felt like it, I, I kind of wanted to do radio, and that's what my dad did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it all starts from, like, wanting to tell stories and, like, be a reporter, and, like, and that's kind of the germ or the seed, I guess, was planted then. And so... Were your parents supportive of it? Uh, Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I think, you know, my sister as well, I have an older sister was kind of drawn to the arts as well. So neither of us were, I guess, what you would call like typical, um, you know, like 
Korean kids, I guess, as far as pursuing like mathematics or like um, medicine or law or whatever. I think um, we both, you know, my sister ended up getting a master's in poetry, and and then mm-hmm. I went to school for journalism. So I think in our family, it's kind of writing and uh, storytelling. I think is part of our makeup, and so uh, we were both, you know. I think low-key, as all parents do, they would have probably preferred me to be a lawyer or, like, um, you know. Because that paper ain't the same. Yeah, right? yeah. It's <laughs> definitely different. Yeah, I think, you Julie know. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it all depends. But I think, you know, like, they realized pretty soon, pretty early on, I think, that um, that wasn't going to be my path. And I think, you know, I'm lucky in a way that they were um, supportive of me. So you went to NYU for journalism. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I I went to NYU, and uh, you know, journalism school back then was like um, I can only imagine what journalism school is like now. Because I mean, it was like really learning the basics of like. Did you go to journalism school? Mm, I no. went. I was in media school. Okay. Yeah. Well, so you know, back then we were learning like the inverted pyramid and shit like that. You mm-hmm. know what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah, so it's before the social media. Yeah, I mean like... Like clickbait headlines. Yeah, because college was the first time. I mean, this is how old I am. That was like the first time I, I went to email. Like, mm-hmm. and we were barely even surfing the internet. Mm-hmm. Sounds so old, surfing the internet. <laughs> but, you know, it was Surf. like the internet was just becoming a thing when I was in college. So, you know, we were very much learning the old school print ideals of journalism. I guess they probably still teach that. It's really like the fundamentals of, um, you know, um, the inverted pyramid, the who, what, you know, the five W's and like um, lead paragraphs and like reporting, mm-hmm. yeah, feature writing. Mm-hmm. and The basics. The basics. And I think it was a good foundation. And I think, um, honestly, I don't know how relevant it is now for kids. And I don't know what they teach in journalism school now, but I think like I've, don't take it for granted that I had that kind of foundation. Volleyball. Did you kind of have like top three broadcasters or top three like companies that you wanted to feed into when you were as far as like where I wanted to work? And like, okay, I want to work at blank. Like right. this is my end goal after college. I think everybody in New York wants to work for the New York Times at some mm-hmm. point, you know. So I had that in mind. I think the New Yorker is obviously another institution, um, but. It's difficult as a young person to get in on the ground floor at those publications without knowing people there mm-hmm. or without luck. So I think that's kind of why a lot of my peers and myself went through the back door of hip hop journalism, which was kind of like in the 90s. But it was also just like there were so many hip hop publications at that time. So there was like a lot of places that you could write, you know, like mm-hmm. from the source. I mean, this is even before Double XL, so it's like the source, rap pages, four thousand eighty, stress yes. on the go, ego trip. I don't know if anyone knows anything I'm talking about, but like basically all of those magazines were active in the '90s, and you know a lot of kids uh, are, you know, like people that wanted to write were able to get a clip, you know, like a byline, you know, basically like your name on an article. But as a matter of fact, actually, when I first started writing, because like. Uh, I kind of sent a, uh, I don't know how, I, I sent a, an actual snail mail letter to Stress Magazine. I wanted to write for Stress, and uh, uh, I sent a letter, and it got responded to, and I was able to get my first bylines that way. Um, I was actually using, like, different aliases. But yeah, everybody had, like, a little AKA. <laughs> yeah, I went by, like, uh, Quack Wallaby was one of them, <laughs> and that's a playoff of Clark Wallaby, and... Uh, I don't know, a couple others. It's kind of embarrassing, actually. but um, That's cool. So did you, what was kind of like your first major internship or major kind of opportunity? Let's see. I think at Vibe, actually. Uh, I interned in Vibe in like 1997. Uh, I think that's when I, 96 or 97. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, uh the in- I, I wasn't able to get an internship in the editorial department, so I was in the business department. If I can recall correctly, at the time, there wasn't any available positions, so I was just like, I'll take whatever. So I was just mm-hmm. doing, like, marketing stuff. But, you know, at the time, Vibe was at 215 Lexington Avenue, and then it was like one floor was business and one floor was 
uh, editorial was very much back then church and state, right. like the, the two. Basically, like the business side and the editorial side were never meant to kind of cross, like because like to maintain your journalistic integrity, you got to be free from the business and from like sales concerns and and ad dollars, um, so that you can maintain the integrity of your content. Um, well, yeah, now it's all bleeding together because of branded content and in order for these uh, media entities to stay alive, they need to, yeah, you know. It's such a crowded space. Yeah, and they need Everyone's to, like. Everyone's competing. It, 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 you know, but, you know, it's like, it's, I think integrity is kind of out the window for a lot of these publications, you know, because, <laughs> it, because it's like there's all these deals being made. And, you know, it, it's often signaled what's advertising and what's not, but I think. You know, sometimes it can get confusing to the consumer. But. Yeah. but I wanted to ask you, like, I wanted to go to that moment of, like, when you walk through those doors at Vibe. Mm. And what what did you see? Like, did you even see, like, other Asian Americans on the floor? There was or? one. There, there was, was one. one. All right. I think you know him, Hyun Kim. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> you guys that? know Hyun? Shout you don't know Hyun? I don't know shout who he is. Yeah, shout out to <laughs> Hyun Kim. He actually, uh, I heard he lives in Spain. Yeah, oh. like, um... Hyun, Hyun is like a was like a friend of me of mine actually I I, I can call him Interesting. that because like you know when I don't know maybe you've had this experience when you come into a place and there's like one other Asian person mm-hmm. and it's like yeah what they call it the narcissism of small differences it's like mm-hmm. there can only be one of us yes. you know so mm-hmm. we had that competition and frustratingly for me he was always like a little bit above me when we were working together but it was a good friendly competition I think and uh, um. So when you was he on the business floor? Or was he on the editorial? No, he was floor? on editorial. Ah, he was okay. on editorial. So mm-hmm. at the time at editorial, Noah Callahan Bever, who I later worked with and for, he's the chief content officer of Complex. Mm-hmm. He was also an intern. So it was like those. I mean, and this is for like anyone that's doing journalism. Like those those friendships that you make when you're interning or when you're young can mm-hmm. last. I mean, this is like 20 years strong now, mm-hmm. and we're still friends. Yeah. And I worked with him for like 10 years. So with Noah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, at Vibe at the time, when I when I started there, I guess in 96 and 97, the reputation, I mean, it's still alive. It's still alive, right? Yeah, Mikey works there. <laughs> my bad, my fault, Mikey. I, it's I knew still it was alive, alive I knew everyone. It was alive. It's but, still alive. But, um, like, in 96, 97, I mean, this is like, you know, right after East-West shit happened, Pac and Biggie died, and Vibe was like the, you know, a very big kind of influential magazine. So, um you were kind of in the middle of it all. Yeah, I mean, it was post Biggie and Pac's death, but mm-hmm. I think like it was he- the the publication was held in high esteem. You know, like a lot of influential journalists like had worked there and written for them. There Sasha Jenkins, Danielle Smith, Alan Light. Uh, I could go on and on. You know, <laughs> Caramonica, like all these people. So, um, and Dave Bree, rest in peace. Rob Kenner, people like that. So I think you know. Um, it felt like when we were young, like really exciting to be there to mm-hmm. learn from these people that we had looked up to and whose byline, Chairman Mao, those type of people. So, you know, like I was gassed actually to be there, you know, like I was excited and, and, and I think I was a little annoying too, you know, like uh, JK can relate to this because he was a little annoying as an intern, <laughs> you know, like you get really like, you want to like make an impact mm-hmm. and be memorable. I remember actually, this probably, this might tickle you, I don't know about you, but there's like a rapper called Cannabis. You know who Cannabis is? No. You know Cannabis. You know Cannabis. Is. So Cannabis was like popping in like 97 or around the time I was interning and when I was, I was like, six I was so, you're six <laughs> years old? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Listening to Cannabis in pre-K. <laughs> you can listen to him now, it's never too late. Amazing. But okay, I was great. like, okay, cool. he was like, uh, at the time making his name on all these clue tapes. And then I wrote up this one sheet about cannabis, like, he's about to blow, like, I transcribed some of his lyrics, Mm -hmm. and then I literally took it, printed it, and, like, slid it under the door of every editor. (gasps) And I look back at that now, and I kind of cringe. It's kind of annoying, you know? Why did someone do that to you? I think I would respect the the drive, but I think it's a little aggressive. I guess now you would just email. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Uh, I remember like talking to Sasha Jenkins, who was the music editor at the time, and I think he was looking at me kind of like, "Dude, calm down." Yeah. Thirsty. Yeah, a little thirsty, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you gotta you gotta like kind of like make your make yourself known. But I mean, I think I've even told this to JK before. Like that, 
as an intern or as any entry level person, there's that persistence versus annoyance. Mm-hmm. It's like a fine line you got to tread, and you got to have the nunchi to, or you got to have the tact to know, like, not to be annoying. Mm-hmm. Yo, Jake low key though, when he was an internet complex, like he wasn't annoying, I would say, but he was definitely like aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I think I was very aggressive. And look at him now. <laughs> but here's here's the advice I would give to interns. Not that this is like an advice podcast or anything, but just like. Do the the tasks that are assigned to you well, and then you'll get other shit to do. You know, I think people, a lot of interns, I think, sometimes feel entitled, like they, they, oh, they're totally. above certain kinds of work. Mm-hmm. But I think, like, you know, like, if you transcribe really well, it'll be noticed, and then that could lead to something else. No, but I think there is something about, like, the tenacity of, like, I'm not used to things being given to me. Yeah. Like, you have to work for yeah. it. And I think I do notice that maybe kids of color or like interns who've come from like an immigrant background yeah they kind of have this understanding of like i need to work for the table like this person's feeding me i need to like do my work yeah, yeah earn my stars and but but you know like uh, and this industry media and, and as journalists and as reporters it does mm-hmm. require a degree of tenacity in itself in and of itself to like pursue stories and see them through pursue sources and mm-hmm. and, and, and and track people down and things mm-hmm. like that yeah. so but I always wanted to work at Vibe. So, like, eventually, I think uh, around, I can't remember what year, 98, 99, something, mm-hmm. 2000. I, I went back to Vibe. I started as a fact checker. and um, So that's, like, really starting from the bottom, right? It really is. Right. And, like, fact checking back then, we used, we used like, books. What is, what is a fact checker for those of us that don't know? So it's basically what it, is, what it sounds like. It's, you know, like every article that's in the magazine before it's published, you've read it and checked all the facts. So that's mm-hmm. like na- spelling of names, dates. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's like sensitive legal type of stuff about like, um, you know, arrests and things like that. Or mostly fact checking was kind of like the way in. Mm-hmm. And it's really valuable. I don't know if kids, I think nowadays the way in is social media. Mm-hmm. But I think having a fact checking background does kind of like, clue you into the editorial process and like you know you get to read all the stories so it was really valuable and then and then from there I got I I, I was able to become an assistant editor and then associate editor etc so Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. so during this time like you were uh you know I feel like any rap journalist that came up they all had to experience the process (laughs) of interviewing artists that you might not necessarily be too fond of as as a process of paying dues we're reviewing albums that you would never really listen to on your free time so what were some memorable experiences that you've had uh and though and and you know any anecdotes from um interviewing artists or uh reviewing albums um i mean there's a lot i guess i mean you know like writing album reviews was kind of like the lowest form mm-hmm. or like the 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 entry level thing to do so mm-hmm. i wrote reviews of like lil bow wow 504 boys delinquent habits <laughs> oh my god, I love them. I'm kidding. I don't know who they are. Uh, <laughs> that, that's just three off top. So that's the thing too. It's like even within the review section, there's a hierarchy. So mm-hmm. they're not gonna give me Jay Z's album. They're totally. gonna give me Lil Bow Wow's album. Mm. I did Lil Bow Wow and Lil Romeo. Matter of fact, uh, and so, but as far as like interviewing rappers, you know, yeah, it's like intimidating sometimes. You know, like I remember one of my first interviews I did actually was for Stress was with Jizza Genius, and like he's such an intense dude, you know, and like. Jizza from the Wu Tang. from the Wu Tang. You know who that is at yeah. least, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jizza. I know Wu Tang. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, you know, because also at the time, you know, I was young, so he's older than me, and so it's like you're interviewing like a young or something, and mm-hmm. like, you know, I was just nervous, and it's like he's a very smart, intense person, and like, you know. It, you got to get used to kind of like it's it's not even just interviewing rappers though when you're a young journalist just interviewing anybody it's kind, it's kind of like nerve-wracking right because it's like you know there you want to engage them and like keep them interested and, and get good responses but you're also kind of like performing and you know like you want to be taken seriously so um mm-hmm. you know like but i interviewed so many people over the years that like at some point you just get it's, you get used to it, I guess. Yeah. You know? I had one interview one time where I was actually writing a freelance article for Blaze. You remember mm-hmm. Blaze? Yeah, yeah, Blaze yeah. was like another hip hop magazine. I got sent to Baton Rouge. It was my first assignment, like 
uh, remote. Mm. So I was sent to Baton Rouge. Like I was so gassed. Like because I had written for Blaze. A premiere issue about this group called Black Star. I know I'm just speaking Arabic to you, but do you know who Black Star is? Most Deaf? No. I know Most Deaf. Yeah, yeah. It was you guys, that group. I'm looking so bad on this podcast. Nah, it's not. Nah. Like it's better so that you don't prepared. know. It's better that you don't know. Anyway, so, so I, I wrote that yeah. article. Yeah. That was like my first $1,000 check mm-hmm. of like a writing. I was mm-hmm. like, because it was back then, it was a dollar a word. And I wrote like a 1,200 word piece and, it was, and I was like so happy. Mm-hmm. So then they were like, all right, well, now we want you to write about mystical. I'm going to send you to Baton Rouge. I'd never been to Baton Rouge. I'd never mm-hmm. been to Louisiana and then I met up with Mystical like in his hotel room me him and his publicist Mm -hmm. this woman called Barbara I remember her name he was just you know like typical rapper shit just steady rolling smoking and like I was so ignorant about No Limit he was on a label called No Limit Mm -hmm. right like a southern label and I'm like a typical like New York or East Coast writer bias and I kept asking him questions about like New York like yo Mm -hmm. you did some collaborations Mm -hmm. with DMX or like what do you think about New York audience and he eventually just snapped he was just like why the fuck you keep asking me questions about New York oh and I was like oh <laughs> shit my bad oh and then after that like God. he stopped he kind of like stopped engaging with me mm. and so like I tried to write the piece but I didn't really have enough material mm-hmm. and the story ended up getting killed mm. so fresh off the heels of like my big first success yes. I had like a big disappointment and you know but that's something that journalists has to live with too, you know, like stories can get killed at any time by an editor. Mm-hmm. I think I didn't prep enough for the interview with Mystical, and mm-hmm. I think I was like a, a little bit too confident about just my skill, my ability. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, like preparation kind of really is a key, you know, like research and preparation. Um, for sure. But well, I also learned that, you know, like you got to keep it moving too, you know, yeah. because it's like in the, even past that, like later in my career, I've had stories killed, stories that I've edited, stories that I've worked on. And it feels really cruel, but you just got to keep it moving, you know? Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me because you kept saying, like, sports was your first love. Mm. And, you know, hip-hop, this kind of journalism was like a backdoor to you. Kinda. But how did that manifest into something where you were like, I want to do this. I want to work at Vibe. I want to write these stories. Um, You know, I just like writing, to be honest. And I really loved hip-hop, too, you mm-hmm. know? So, like, I felt like I was living... Uh, you know, did you grow somewhat up the culture? To it all yeah, the time? definitely. Mm-hmm. High school, junior high school, elementary school. I mean, like, why did you r- like it so much? Why did I like it so much? I mean, I felt like it was just something. You know, like back then, you know, hip hop is so mainstream now. But back then, it was really like a niche culture, and it was kind oh. of different, like a subculture. So I gravitated toward it because it was like something that was like outside of the norm and a little even taboo, especially for as an Asian person. Um. So like, were there any instances that you felt like uh, that 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 posed as a challenge for you when you were coming up because you because of your ethnicity? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, like honestly, when I was young, like late, you know, like as a teenager in my twenties, I was like so immersed in the lifestyle that I kind of just felt like I was being myself and I didn't really feel it. But um, Definitely. I mean, there were, like, as you said, uh, there were very few of us. And I did kind of feel like it was important for my, um, because, you know, similar to, I'm sure, your experience, like, when I was coming up, when I saw, like, the name Mao or something like that, you know, or O, you know, Minya O, like, I was, or, you know, I was like, it excited me and it made me, inspired me. It made me want to, it made me want to add my name to that, you know, to, to that list. So, uh, I was always aware that, you know, I was a, a minority um, in the field of hip-hop journalism, but I don't think I really, it didn't really hinder me, you know what I mean? Yeah, so how did you go from kind of this budding writer to uh, moving on to Complex, and probably before Complex, like, blew up as it is a known entity now? Yeah, like, I feel like, you know, I moved from Vibe to Complex uh, in 2004, I mm-hmm. think, and it was like Complex was just a year and a half old. Mm-hmm. I vividly remember uh, sitting with the editor-in-chief at the time at Vibe. Yeah. I won't say who it is. <laughs> no, that's nothing bad, like, but I, the, this editor-in-chief was looking at me like, why are you going to Complex? Like, you know, like, at the time, <laughs> yeah, like, Complex was just like an unknown entity, really, and kind wow. of a rookie, and, and Vibe was well-established. I, I, I always remember that sort of skepticism. Mm-hmm. And not to say that I wanted to, like... Um, you know, told you so or anything, but it was just like, it felt like a risk at the time. But when I went 
it was a very small staff and uh, it was something new. It was different and it was like um, broader than just hip hop. It was kind of like a more of a um, broader youth culture lifestyle magazine. But when I was there, I recruited Noah, who was at Vibe, to come and he eventually became the editor in chief. Wow. And so I actually preceded mm-hmm. Noah. Of course, I ended up working for him, but it <laughs> uh, tends to be like what happens with me, I think. I kind of like make things happen, but then uh, fall to the shadows. Okay, so you kind of are the person in the background that are yeah. kind of like making things happen. And I can speak to that because I tried to research you, and there's <laughs> not a lot that I could find. Oh, that's good, I right? was trying really hard, and it's just kind of, you know, maybe that is kind of speaking to you being in the background a little bit. Can yeah. you tell us about Well, why? I mean, I think one of the reasons is because I'm very private. Person, but I think beyond that, I do think Asianness, or maybe for me in particular, my Asianness has an effect on that, or on how um, how much I put myself out there. I think I'm by nature, you know, although I'm like the oldest amongst like a lot of my peer group, I'm very deferential, and I think I'm kind of happy to support. Uh, and not try to take the spotlight, but I think sometimes it's to my own detriment. And actually, I learned from Jakey actually because like Jakey like has like a lot of um, he I, I respect him a lot for how he kind of like uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say himself. promotes himself, but kind of just like fearless about putting himself out there. And I think maybe it's like something where the older generation learns from the younger generation because. I mostly defer. And actually, it's interesting, speaking of ESPN, I remember, I don't know if this is like a weird question to ask in an interview, but when I was in my ESPN interview, the editor-in-chief asked me, like, how does being Korean affect how you do your job? Mm-hmm. Or maybe he said, like, how does being Asian affect how you do your job? That's illegal, but okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind <laughs> of like... said that's illegal. <laughs> it was kind of informal, and I won't name who it was that asked me that. But interesting. I remember saying something like, you know, like, I'm a really hard worker, and I'm also very deferential to my boss. Like, you know, like, I'll make sure my boss looks good, you know? Like, I'll, I'll work hard for him. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's true, but, you know, I think that's a good quality to be, mm-hmm. good quality to have as an employee, but then it kind of gets in the way of becoming a boss. I think he was trying to, like, yeah, po- poke my brain a little Yo. bit. It was, But it wasn't, I didn't take offense to it. It was just one of those things oh. where, like, you have to know the guy, too. He was, like, a little bit of a new-agey type of... You know, it wasn't your standard interview. Mm-hmm. But, you know, overall, I think, like, as I reflect, I mean, my career is not nearly over, but I do think there are spots where I could have stepped out of the background more mm-hmm. and exposed myself more, so to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. But it takes a certain kind of fearlessness and courage to do that, and I don't think necessarily that that was ingrained in me as a child. You know, like I think, uh, not to blame my parents, but I mm-hmm. think, you know, like, I'll, you know, Asian kids aren't really necessarily told or raised to like beat their chest and like right. kind of like be, sure. yeah, yeah, like, you know, so it's kind of just like player position, you know, like, yeah. yeah, like, you know, don't be like too out there, you know, and, and I think like, uh, I'm getting better at it, I think, I'm getting better at it, and I think, you know, like, I don't have too many regrets, but I think. There are certain points where I think I could have beat my chest a little bit more, and who knows, you know, like I could have gone maybe far, even far. This sounds sad, actually. I don't think I don't. It's not like regret per se. It's just, but I say that to say this: it's like you know, like you should be proud of what you do, and and I think the main thing you have to get over is that fear of exposing yourself and being judged and being. And I think that's why uh, I respect J.K. because I don't think he has that fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everyone has their own insecurities and anxieties, I think, but it's, like, your ability to withstand or tolerate them and, and, like, still do what you do yeah. is, like, important. And, yeah. you know, like, sometimes I always I, I always kind of joked all throughout the years that I'm, I'm a great number two, but I don't know if I'd be a great number one. And, like, I've had kind of, like, very brief experiences being a number one, and, it, and, and I don't know if I'm suited for the role. So, Well, I would say knock on wood, like, to, to this point, and this is, like believe it or not, like almost tw- two decades deep into a career, like I've never wanted for a job. I've never been unemployed, you know, mm-hmm. knock on wood. And I think it's because 
uh, I'm a good team player, you know? Like, I think, mm-hmm. like, I can make myself indispensable, yeah. you know? Well, it's just, like, so interesting to me, though, because you talk a lot about, like, the fear, but I think writing and putting things out there that can be completely scrutinized, that yeah. takes so much level of courage. Yeah, and that's why I don't write that much, because <laughs> writing sucks. I hate writing. No way. Yeah, but I actually why have to, you? I have, like, two things I have to write over the next couple of months that's giving me so much anxiety. Like, mm-hmm. that's a crazy thing, too. Like, even this far deep into a career, like, the thought of writing can be still that anxiety-inducing, I think. You know, like, do you write a lot? No, I don't. Yeah. It's right. the same reason as you. It's, no, it's yeah. kind of, it, it almost feels like um, you're getting naked. Because you, your <laughs> knowledge that you have in your brain is basically getting exposed and uh, for the world to dissect. You know what I mean? So it's not even about like how you articulate yourself, but it's a culmination of that and also um, what your inner fears and your insecurities are, and all of that kind of gets reflected into the writing. You know what I'm saying? So um, yeah, but I feel like it's a very therapeutic process. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the the word I I think of is like audacity. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it's you know the artist way, the book, the artist way. Yeah. They, in the artist way, which is kind of like a self help book, kind of new agey for artists or aspiring mm-hmm. artists of all fields. Like they talk a lot about the audacity of the mm-hmm. artist and 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 what it requires to be fearless with mm-hmm. your art, whatever it may be, painting, mm-hmm. drawing, writing, and. Uh, you know, I kind of think about that all the time because the true great artists have that audacity, you know, to like put themselves out there without, or even with fear of judgment, but to be able to tolerate it and kind of like overcome it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's something that I'm constantly aspiring to too, so. Yeah, I I kind of wanted to follow up with that and you, at least some of the recent articles I saw you write, Mm -hmm. a lot of it is showcasing kind of Asian American or Korean or... Asian artists, yeah, yeah. right? And I feel like you've gotten to a point where you have a platform where you can bring these people up to light. Right. And, you know, even though you claim that I like to be in the background, but you're kind of like this person who's really surfacing these people and right. giving them a moment. Right. And I was just curious of like how, it, do you feel like that is kind of imposed onto you or is it something that you proactively seek out of like I want to showcase this person I think it's more of the latter but I'm glad that you say that I appreciate that you said that I mean I think I do try somewhat to showcase them but I'm also leery of being just a racial cheerleader or Mm -hmm. an ethnic cheerleader because I feel like you start to lose credibility if like every Korean thing is the best thing ever. If mm-hmm. Bad Rap's the best movie ever, it's good. If Young Lei <laughs> yeah. is the best kicker ever. Mm-hmm. If Soju is the best liquor ever. Mm-hmm. If Okja is the best movie on Netflix. Like mm-hmm. you don't want to become that person who's just like pom poming all the yeah. time. And I'm actually like, I actually had a talk with an editor. Uh, I mean, a colleague of mine, a non-Korean person, and I was telling her like, I feel like, because I, I wrote a little thing about Yeji. And I didn't mm-hmm. really feel like writing about Yeji. Like, I like her. I like her music. But I felt like it's worthy of writing about. And no one else was going to write about it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay. They were doing, like, a roundup at my job. Like, music that you should be listening to. And I was starting to write the blurb. And then I was kind of like... <laughs> I just kind of felt like it almost yeah. started to feel, like, perfunctory in a mm-hmm. way where it's like... It's Korean, so Donnie's going to write about it, and he's going to gush about it, you know, like write something, yeah. like effusively praising it. And she was like, no, nah, don't worry about it. Because like, I think she said that from a woman's perspective, women do that a lot for women, for other women too, mm-hmm. you know? it's Because like, it's like you want to support your own kind, I guess. Um, I say that as I was mentioning two articles that I'm writing that are both Korean-related, like mm-hmm. one's about the Olympics and one's about Hong Sang-soo, the Kamdok director. So... You know, like, I do choose to do that, and I do uh, appreciate that I have a platform uh, that otherwise wouldn't cover these subjects. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm able to uh, get these articles in there, and I think I uh, appreciate the fact that they're read, and, like, I'm introducing subjects to people. But I also don't want to be pigeonholed as just, like, here's the guy that writes about Korean shit, you know? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, it it can feel a little bit like a box, you know? Uh, you know, you wrote a very interesting piece about the group chat. Yeah, our group chat. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, why do you think it's important to have a tribe or like something that you feel like you belong to? 
um, as a support system. Yeah, I mean, like the group chat piece really was just stem from the group chat that Jakey and I are in, along with like a few other degenerates. And uh, it's like that's why I'm not on. <laughs> are you in group chat? You're in some group chats. Yeah, but not the gene- degenerate kind. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, like it, it, it was. It, it's kind of a, it, the piece. Actually, I, I actually really like that piece. Uh, to be honest, because I felt like it spoke to something that's real, which is that um, the group chat is really a safe space for people to communicate, and and it's one of the only safe spaces left, because mm-hmm. like, you know, Twitter isn't safe, and you know, like there's various forms of social media, a republic sort of interaction that is meant to be consumed by all, but group chats are meant to be consumed by a tribe, you know, yeah. like your people, and I think my experience in the group chat with JK and other people has been the, the kind of like the most fun conversation that I have on a day-to-day basis, you know? So um, the article kind of speaks to that. Well, for those who didn't read the article yet. If you didn't read the article, what's wrong <laughs> you with you? You guys are whack. <laughs> um, but yeah, you just talk about how, you know, you were just like, going to your buddy's house to yeah i was game. going to my friend's house with and some plastic bags in my hand with beer and uh somebody thought i was a delivery guy which mm-hmm. i didn't feel was like a severe affront um well here's the thing like in the, in this particular situation and it's been it's not the first time or last time i was uh, i guess maybe that was the last time i was confused with a delivery person but i think the mental calculus that goes in your mind is like one i looked at my clothes and i looked at the fact i was carrying plastic bags and i kind of get it like i kind of look like a delivery guy you know it makes sense but beyond that i think what you're speaking to or as far as like entitlement goes or you know like i think it's the thought a white person or a non-Asian person thinking that I'm a delivery person is fair. You can think whatever the fuck you want. It's actually voicing that. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is kind of problematic. Because, like, that that shows a level of entitlement or sort of, uh, you know, like, if I'm at Best Buy and I see somebody in a blue shirt, mm-hmm. you know, like, the natural inclination there is to think that that guy works at Best Buy, but I'm going to make triply, doubly, triply sure that the shirt says Best Buy on it before I say, like, can you show me where the earbuds are? Yo, J- just because, like, I don't want to make that mistake. And I feel like... You're a big homie, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, and I feel like... I like blue a lot. <laughs> I feel like, you know, like, for Asian people, for white, for non-Asians, and they just don't even... They don't have that filter. It's just, like, it's just their, their immediate association is delivery because most of the Asian people they see are delivery people, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I I don't think it's wrong to make an assumption or to think something, but I think to actually voice it is a little bit, I think people should take a second and, and like check themselves, you know, before, sure. they, before they make that leap. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you because like just being Asian American in media or like just any minority, sometimes it's exhausting to be the advocate constantly yeah it's like it's like what i was saying about writing the articles it's like you don't you know i feel like all of us had that experience like i'm sure somebody asked you do you speak this language literally just today like a producer was like i need you to look over this footage i I need to tell if it's mandarin or cantonese and i was like i'm korean (laughs) well we've been talking about this lately in the chat too that Mm. as asian stories are becoming more desirable i guess or being told more Mm -hmm. they're seeking actively seeking more people to like connect journalists journalists are seeking asian people to connect them to other asian people to tell these stories but it's almost kind of like random you know yeah it's real random like i got interviewed for this piece uh for mtv about uh, kendrick lamar's Mm -hmm. kung fu kenny obsession so they just like I'll take any Asians yeah, talking no, about. They, they, they just reached, need a yellow face to yeah, like cosign they, or they you reached know? out to me, you know, because I'm the co-producer of Bad Rap, which is a documentary about Asian American rappers. But I did have to check the young lady, like, yo, but you know, I'm not Chinese American, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you know, what I'm saying yeah. PSA to all fucking media members that are trying to get like some shit about Asian, like pick the right Asian, like yeah. at least like get the, the right, right, get the right fucking uh, Asian. Wait, but I want to go back to the tribe thing though, because. I just wanted to ask him about the importance of maybe having that support system. Like, did you always have it? Or do you oh, feel like in these recent right. years that has truly manifested into something? Well, I mean, obviously, I think the group chat technology is something fairly new, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, growing up or, you know, like in college and things like that, it was not as immediate. The group chat, you know, like, is like a 
I think I mentioned maybe in the piece, but it's like you have that, like you said, a support group in your pocket at all times. So mm -hmm. it's like anything fucked up happens to you or anything crazy, like you just hit them up and be like, yo, this just happened. Or mm -hmm. like, you know, what do you think? Or like, I remember this delivery thing. I was like, yo, who's here has been confused with a delivery person or been thought of or mistaken for a delivery person that everybody has, you mm -hmm. know? I and mean, it's, it's something we all share. And like, that's the thing. Like when I went to my friend's house, it's like, they don't share that experience. Like they don't understand what it, and, 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 and again, I feel like maybe I am doing a, them a disservice because tribalism is good to a point, but then when you close off, it doesn't really mm -hmm. lend itself to like understanding and like, yeah. you know, like connection between mm -hmm. different people, different races. Yeah. And if we all close ourselves off into tribes, then ultimately communication will break down. So maybe I should have shared it with them. Maybe next time I will. Yeah, so I, I kind of wanted to uh, ask you some questions just about your job. I mean, we kind of want to enlighten people what your job as an editor entails. Okay. So what does it mean to be an editor? Like, because, you know, when I used to edit, um, people would ask me, like, so what are you doing? I tell them, like, I'm an editor for a magazine, and they would ask me, like, what the fuck does that mean? Essentially, it, on the, it's just making, it's just working with writers uh, and, and, like, editing their stories, but also developing ideas and the voice of the publication, I guess, is also part of it. Um, I guess that's basically what I do for where I work now, The Ringer. Uh, I work with writers and develop story ideas, but then overall macro kind of helps shape the voice of the publication. So, you know. Um, so are you pretty much just reading and rewriting uh, pieces every day? Yeah, I wouldn't say rewriting, uh, more like helping figure out or diagnose what the story might need or like rearranging. But the writers that we have, particularly at The Ringer, theringer.com, go check it out. Like, we have very good writers. So, um, you know, at Complex, a lot of the editing is rewriting, not to disparage uh, the writers at Complex, but there's a lot of younger people that need a lot of massaging, I think, and, and a lot of uh, tutelage. But I think for The Ringer, it's mostly just helping the writers f shape their ideas. And as a writer myself, uh, I, it, uh, I work with editors at The Ringer, too, that help shape my ideas. So it's kind of like a really good place to work as if you're a writer or if you're into editorial. So I've gotten my shit chopped up in multiple pieces and reattached like Frankenstein style <laughs> a lot, especially by you. You know, I'm going to just put that out there. You know, like, I'm not going to lie, man. Certain shorties used to come up to me in college be like, oh, I read your article. Yo, shit came out tight. Yeah. I was like, word. And I didn't mention your name at the time. You but shouldn't I have. Like, well, I mean, yeah, that's uh, uh, back to what we were talking about before. That's like the ultimate background job as an editor because it's like the ed it doesn't say it says written by by J.K. Mm -hmm. Cho. It doesn't say edited by whoever. Right, right, right. Now, but um, I, 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 I'm kind of glad that you brought that up because, you know, magazine journalism or music journalism or journalism of any type, it's very different now, even compared to when I started, you know, writing back in like 2007 and 2008, you know, with uh just the media platforms itself is just the the type of tools that get used in media is very different. So how does how has that affected your job as somebody who comes from a writing editing background? Well, luckily, I mean, I work for a site or a platform right now that is sort of more old school. So, you know, at Complex, uh, for example, it's m there's less emphasis, I think, on writing, uh, especially now. I mean, like the catchphrase is pivot to video for media. So. Mm -hmm. I think there's less and less importance maybe placed on the written word at a lot of media entities, but I think for The Ringer, we still really value long form and and the quality of writing. So honestly, it feels like almost print ideals that I'm working with now where we have a copy department, we have a fact-checking crew, every word is kind of scrutinized, and so it almost feels like an old school magazine, except in the digital age. So I, I quite like that part of working at The Ringer, mm -hmm. but I know that that's not the experience everywhere. So um, there's certainly a factory-like, you know, method to content creation now, nowadays. I mean, since you deal with so many writers, like what are some qualities that you look for somebody who wants to write and um, what's like one rule of thumb that you have when you edit a piece? 
Hmm. You know, talent goes a long way, to be honest. Like, if you're a really talented writer, you can get away with a lot of shit. Like, you can miss deadlines and you can be a little temperamental. Like, I, I actually hate to say it, but it's true. Um, I will say, though, that, like, if you're not a great writer uh, or, you know, just an adequate writer, if if you're, like, really reliable, you can make a living. Because, like, I think editors will always look to like the path of least resistance and I think if you like you're a writer that consistently delivers adequate copy you'll you'll find work just because it's like you'll be reliable basically what he's saying is that if your pen game ain't that strong man make sure that shit is on time you yeah know what I'm saying? <laughs> you'll make your deadlines if you you know like but if you're like David Foster Wallace maybe you don't have to so every writer is different in their own way and, and neurotic and crazy in their own way um, I guess the one advice I would give is like uh, I get a lot of pitches, like pitches meaning like writers send me ideas, like writers that I don't work with mm-hmm. that are like trying to um, be published. And mm-hmm. I think I have a, you know, like I think pitching is like a skill and an art in and of itself. I mean, maybe it's too inside baseball to get into now, but so I what think do you, what, what is a pitch? A pitch is basically like I want to write about X topic for your ma- your magazine or your website, and I think like a lot of writers just kind of pitch things that are so broad and vague that instantly I'm like turned off I'm like no you know like you have to really sell the story but you have to do it in a succinct way and you know like I'm still pitching like I'm pitching TV shows and stuff like that you know so like uh, I'm practicing what I'm preaching you know because you want to be able to catch someone's attention but then make it like really feel urgent I've been like thinking about some TV ideas and like I had a couple leads I'm uh, working or talking to a producer, but I, then I also just like directly pitch Viceland just out the blue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they just got back to me. They were like, "We love your ideas, but they're just not right for us right now." It's so. like the ill college rejection letter. <laughs> yeah. This year, it was a, a what is it, monumental number of applicants. So yeah, couldn't take you in. Yeah, but you know, like that's kind of like just, you know, that's what being a creative is about. Is just like putting yourself out there and getting rejected, and then like. How many times Kanye got rejected? How many how many label execs Kanye rap for? Like, you know, it's, it's just like not everyone's going to see it the same way you do. Uh, Is there like a dream project? <laughs> There's a lot of dream projects. Like, I've been, you know, like I have a couple. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I want to do a documentary about um 2002 Korean World Cup team. <laughs> oh my god. But one particular game, the Italy game. I was thinking about that a lot today cuz Italy Failed to make the World Cup today. They they lost to Sweden, oh, wow. which is crazy. Yeah, which is kind of crazy. That's crazy. that's crazy. That's the first time I've ever seen my parents embrace each other. The 2002 World Cup. That game, yeah. the Italy game. You think that helped make a lot of babies? I would say there's like you know like well there's, no there's babies like, came out of my family. I definitely, from that game. I definitely think I was born because <laughs> as a result of the '88 Olympics. I was just about to say there's like in mm-hmm. Korean history, you know, obviously there's like a lot of different parts of history, but. Mm-hmm two very seminal events are sports related which is 88 Olympics and 2002 World Cup like those mm-hmm. are very uh, country defining nation defining moments totally and I think that 2002 World Cup in particular was really like a turning point as far as like Korea's self esteem yeah. you know but that particular game Korea Italy which was the round of 16 game the Anjong Wan game was like um, really kind of monumental and I kind of wanted totally. to do a documentary about That'll it. That would be so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember where you were at that game? Yeah, of course. I was in K-Town watching <laughs> the game. It was 7.30 a.m., you know? I was with Hyun Kim, as a matter of fact. Oh, Hyun Kim, of, come And my back. sister. My sister. <laughs> and we were going ape shit, you know? Because, like, like, nobody expected us to win and it was, like, so dramatic, you know? We were losing one nothing, oh and then, like, scored in, like, the 90th minute and then extra time and then, like, People header. and fouled everywhere. Yes. But this is back, like, I had hair and I grew my hair like on Jung Won like it was like mad long pictures (laughs) it didn't happen you know like we were lit Mm. that you know like that I mean obviously then the next game was Spain and you know like it it continued on but it was like that game was like a crazy game yeah not yeah for real Um, so since we were talking about music so much like what's one album that you always find yourself going back to Infamous (laughs) <laughs> Infamous, Mob Deep. Tell, tell us a little bit about Infamous. What, what kind of album is that? Well, Mob Deep is 
an influential duo from Queens, Queensbridge to be specific, composed of Havoc and Prodigy, who died actually last year, rest in peace. And The Infamous is their second album from 1995. It has the song Shook Ones, which everybody knows, but it's what we call an end-to-end banger. Like, every song is amazing, and I listen to it a lot, probably too much. It makes me really washed and old, but... It's a flawless album. It's like a particular milieu, I guess, and like a kind of um, feel, kind of expressing regret and remorse and sort of like, it's complicated, but that's what makes it great art, you know? What is like one regret that you always look back on, if there is one? I mean, you know, uh, I don't really have any, I don't know. To be honest, like, I regret starting to drink tonight, actually. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> I, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be drinking you know? there's no real big there's no real big regrets i think like you know i wish um i kind of wish complex would have kept Jesus and meryl to be honest like i wish we could have continued that relationship but yo that's real son but yo, you know like i don't i wish mm-hmm. that selfishly but i feel like they've advanced now way further than they would have and i'm happy for them What's your, can I just ask this one? So what's your most significant relationship in your life? Has been or is? So Julie asked, what has been like the most significant relationship in your life? Both. So you could, like seriously? Yeah. Probably like my therapist. <gasps> you have a therapist? Yeah. Because yeah. like my therapist actually is someone I've been with for like some time now. It sounds crazy to say, but like she knows everything. You know, like more than my parents, more than my sister, definitely more than a girl or or woman, I guess I should say, that I've been in a relationship with. So, how long have you been seeing her? Now we're getting seeing really her. personal. <laughs> yeah, a long time. Like, yeah. uh, I kind of, I want to see one, but I haven't taken the step. It's funny. My sister actually was the one who recommended her to me. It's difficult. Therapy is difficult. You know, like, I don't know if you guys have ever done it, but it's like you really have to be willing to work through uncomfortable things, like about your past and about your childhood and like the things that make you who you are. But it's really therapeutic and like, um, yeah, yeah. What triggered you to? Going to therapy. I know it's a very stigma. It's yeah, there's a stigma, especially for Koreans. Yeah, like I think it was just like at the time when I first started going, it was like I was going through like a relationship shit and I was feeling kind of crazy, like anxious and stuff. And I got over that as people do. And then I just continued to go because I felt like it was a safe space that I could like talk about my problems and stuff, you know? So. I always kind of liken it to like people go to the gym regularly for like their physical well-being and this is for like your mental well-being. It's like the gym for your brain. You know, I just came back from Korea and like we're talking about the stigma for Koreans, right? Like one thing I think Koreans could stand to do, use more of is therapy because I think in Seoul, you know, you've been to, everyone's been to Seoul. It's Mm -hmm. like people do not stop and like reflect on what they're feeling. They're just either drinking or just working or just numbing themselves some way or somehow. And it's like, it's life is too crazy for them to kind of like stop and kind of like take stock of how they feel, you know? It's much easier to detach yourself and just get fucked up every night or just like work yourself to the bone. And, uh, you know, there's a, there, there, that's part of us too. I mean, we're, we're all Korean, we share that blood, but I think like, there's something unhealthy about it too. The therapist that you go to now, was that your first and Yeah, last? it was, it was first That's and so last. Lucky. Yeah. That's so That's so great. Trust me, she knows some dark stuff. Oh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's our next guest. <laughs> Before uh, we go, the, do, you have, go do you have a mantra that you live by? Uh, under promise, over deliver. I heard that a lot. Yeah, whenever he edits my stories, he always tells me that. (laughs) Under promise, over the Yeah. All right. Cool. Once again, yo, I appreciate you coming through, Donnie Young. Thank you for having me. First episode ever. It's fun. I can't believe I'm drinking all this. $6.99 per pound. You know, we out here. Uh, Once again. So I have one more mantra. Always do your best. Uh.
Okay, that should sound cliche as fuck. No, nah, but it's, it's simple, but it's true. Always do your best. Like, even I'm sitting here right now doing this pilot thing with you, I'm doing my best. Like, do your best. Three drinks in deep, he's doing Doing my best drinking this shit. Yes, you are. Great. Um, yeah, so once again, $6.99 per pound podcast. And this was co-produced by Julie Young of Dreammaker 3D. Mixed, mastered, and recorded by Marcus Epic Pleasure ham so yeah thank you guys for tuning in and always uh, do your best yeah always do your best peace cheers hey yo it's 6.99 per pound podcast